This is Publishing Talks, a podcast about books and publishing. I'm your host, David Wilk. I'm talking to Michael Wolf, who's in California, um, a longtime literary person, a poet, writer, uh, publisher, form bookseller, filmmaker. Uh, you've done a lot of different things, Michael. How are you? I'm doing fine, David. It's great to hear your voice. Yeah, it's really nice to talk to you. It's been a long time since we were, you know, in this this way, we're virtually in the same place, but in the same physical space a very long time. Yes. So this show or podcast is really about publishing and books, and you've done a lot of other things. So I thought we should begin at the point in time where I think we first met, which was in the 70s. You were a bookseller. You had a an independent press called Tombaktu Books. You were in Bolinas, California. But I know you you went to college in the East. So what got you to go West at that particular time? What were you doing around, you know, when you first went out to California? Well, just before I went to California, I had been living in West Africa and North Africa for three years. So when I came back to the United States, I was looking for um something quiet, <laughs> uh, something small, and something not too overtly American, uh, because I'd been away from the country for a long time. Um, so I, I found Bolinas. Um, uh, being a writer, I knew that there were some writers there, and I went out and poked around, and it seemed like a, a, a likely enough spot for me, quiet enough. And um, of course, I needed a gig. I never had much money. So um, my next door neighbor in Bolinas owned a bookstore, the only bookstore in town. I mean, what, there are 1,500 people in town. So could you even make a bookstore work? She, she did. And um, I had just about enough money to make a down payment on the store. And, uh, and I took it over. And um, I ran it for five years six days a week, and bought my books from book people in Berkeley, where I think eventually I met you when you were visiting there one day. I think that's right. Yeah. So that takes us up to, that's 1973. You know, I, I, I had an Amy Lowell Traveling Poetry Scholarship, which was a scholarship for poetry that you had to spend the money out of the country. That was the only real requirement. The other was that you had to send 10 poems in at the end of the year. And um, most people were meant to go to Paris and get some culture, you know? I mean, that was the whole philosophy of the grant. And I wound up in Africa, and I'm not sure, but I didn't scare them a little bit, because the second end of the first year, I, I wrote to them and said, well, I'm, I'm leaving Morocco, and I'm heading down to Senegal, and is there any way that I could extend this grant? And they wrote back and said yes. And so I had the grant for a second year. And then the third year I was in Ghana. I was slowly making my way around the big bulge of West Africa, you know, uh, mostly in the backs of trucks and buses, not sometimes. I never flew anywhere. And uh, they gave me the grant again. So I was in Africa for three years writing poetry. I've never been paid to write poetry before. It was the best gig I've ever had, a very good gig. Yeah. So when I came back to Bolinas, I was a pretty confirmed 
uh, vagabond and, and, and poet. And I turned into a shopkeeper, but I, I, I kept the poetry going. And uh, I set up a reading series in Bellinas where we had just, I, it was a chance for me to hear who was in town. You know, I mean, you'd come into the bookstore and take a look at a book, but um, I met all the writers that way. And the first year that I lived in town, I put on a, uh, nobody else was doing it. So I had a reading series and some people came from out of town, but mostly it was, yeah, you know, so Bill Berkson was there, Bobby Louise Hawkins was there, Bob Creeley was there, Tom Clark was there, Jim Carroll was there, and quite a number of other poets, um, uh, Duncan McNaughton, Chow John Thorpe, Joanne Kiger. It was quite a little group. And I, I, I got to meet them one by one, you know, over the counter of my bookstore, which was much better than meeting them in the bar. Yeah, for me, anyway. <laughs> Right, right. Yeah, no, Bellinas, I, Bellinas definitely was a uh, an unusual kind of geographical, you know, magnet in a sense for a lot of people, just far enough outside of San Francisco uh, to be affordable but accessible still to the city for um, a lot of those people. And that's uh, right. So that's right. That's when you started publishing as well, wasn't that in the yes. early mid seventies? Yes, that's right. I, I named the company Tombuktu. Well, I wanted to call it Timbuktu, but one of the writers said, mm. no, no, if you're going to call it something, you have to at least spell it right. So I spelled <laughs> it the way it's spelled, you know, Tombuktu, and, um, which confused everybody but me. I didn't really care. Um, I just needed a name. <laughs> Except that, that for centuries in West Africa, uh, Tombuktu or Timbuktu was um, was a book center. It was a center of okay. learning. Um, uh, there there are still thousands of manuscripts there which have been rescued in the last ten years. A big project, you know, tens of thousands of manuscripts. So it was kind of the library of the um, largest of the Islamic states in West Africa. And they had a lot of old Greek literature that had been translated, you know, the transmission of knowledge uh, that went on there. So I thought, well, that would be a good title for my little press, you know. They had a saying yeah. that in Tombuktu, a book was worth its weight in gold. Put the gold, you put the gold in one pan, you put the book in the other, and when they equal each other, that's the price of the book. And I thought, well, you know, uh, maybe I'll get rich. Who knows? You know? <laughs> uh, yeah, so I didn't, but um, I did publish um, a bunch of books, and uh, I met a lot of really interesting people in in Bolinas. I lived there for fifteen years. What was the the beginning and ending of Tombaktu? Um, as I recall, I think it was you know a ten or fifteen year period. Published the first book by Lewis McAdams. Um, he was living on a pig farm in the in the uh, uh, barn uh, up in the rafters, and uh, he wrote a book called News from Nyman Farm. It was a single poem, quite long. I remember that. Yeah, yep, I remember that book. Yeah, and um, I later lived on that farm too, inadvertently. I mean, it was just a good place to be many, many years later. Um, but, but in any case, uh, I mixed it up a little bit. I mean, Certainly, many, many people from Bolinas and the Bay Area later I published. But 
I had been in Morocco for a year, more than a year, and I uh, became pretty good friends with Paul Bowles. And Paul Bowles was, as well as being a good novelist and a poet, um, was also a translator, excellent translator. Um, and he translated um, unlettered um, Moroccan storytellers, uh, the best known of whom was Muhammad Morabit. So in addition to the kind of Bay Area poets that I was publishing and prose writers, I occasionally salt and peppered the the uh, list with a translation of one more Moroccan storyteller. These were oral. You know, these people told their stories into tape recorders and Paul translated them out of a dialect, not Arabic really, you know, Moroccan mm. dialect, um, unwritten. And uh, Marabit was a, a wonderful storyteller. Another one was a guy named Larbi Layachi. I published a book of his. Um, anyway, you know, that, some of that. And I published Paul's last book. So there was a little Moro you know, African flavoring in there that I just couldn't resist because I had access to these manuscripts. and. And um, and they were great stories, you know. So one thing led to another. It was kind of a, a mixed up list, but what the heck, you know? I mean, that's what small press is all about. You should be able to at least right. publish what you want, you know. You're gonna well, you publish what you are enthusiastic about and what you know, yes. and uh, through the people that you know as well. Um, yeah. A lot of it is that kind of accidental connection. I think you were in a particular place and time that gave you access to some really interesting people. Oh, it was it was an excellent. I, I didn't really plan it. Let me tell you, as most of my life, <laughs> uh, but um, uh, um, Lucia Berlin, you know, was I published her first big book, her first sizable book. I mean, and I mean, it was only ten years after she died that she became a world famous author. But she did become a world famous author. So just curious, how did you meet her or how did you connect with her? Do you remember? I met her and Douglas Wolf at about the same time. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I met Lucia through friends. Uh, I think it was Alistair Johnston, who another publisher mm -hmm. at Paul Troon Press. Paul Troon. And he was a fine publisher. You know, and still is an, an extremely talented um, letterpress print, beautifully designed and printed books. I was at the other end of the spectrum uh, on aesthetics, you know. <laughs> um, uh, but I believe it was Alistair that either introduced me to or mentioned that, you know, you ought to get to know Lucia, something like that. And I did, and we became great friends, Lucia and I did. She would. She came out and uh, sort of babysat my mother and my home in Bolinas while I got married and went on a honeymoon. Mm. <laughs> Lucille was a good friend. You know? we, 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 we spent a lot of time together. Jim Carroll was another one. You know, The Basketball Diaries was also a book. Yeah. I would publish like 500 copies of a book. I mean, nobody was going to get famous out of Tombuctu books. <laughs> but, um, uh, but Jim was, you know, Jim brought his own fame with him and his own history. And um, he was just emerging as a, a rock star, I guess you would say. 
Uh, and one thing led to another, and that book was, you know, a, a huge bestseller for, um, well, originally for Bantam Books, and then another publisher picked it up from there. But I did, I really went overboard with that book. I published a thousand copies. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, but this is, yeah. you know, that's, I think that was, that happened quite a bit for many of us doing, you know, in small runs, we couldn't afford to do a bigger run. If a book became successful, you had it had to go somewhere else. Or if an author became really successful, um, you know, that happened with um, Jargon Society and the um, White Trash Cooking book that right. they, you know, they were right. only able to afford to print a few thousand yeah. copies and then it became massive and they had to sell it. Yeah. So, yeah, um, yeah, not uncommon. Yeah. But how long did you? How long did the press go? I am not remembering when you stopped. My last book was uh, the uh, Paul Bowles stories. Was seven stories called uh, "Unwelcome Words." Had three shotguns on the cover, and um, and it was uh, you know a book of seven stories. And I figured that that would be a good one to go out on. So I published that in 1990, 1990 I think it was. Something like that, right? Right so, in there. Yeah. What was it that kind of uh, brought you to the closing point with that? You know, it's I know every, sometimes it's just um, you get tired of doing it, or maybe you you want to do something else, and there isn't time to do both. But what, what, in your case, what what was it that caused you to stop publishing? I think it was economics. When I first started doing this, I could lay out a book on my kitchen table. Um, send it to Macintosh in Michigan and get back a, a, a box of 500 books and give them to Inland Books, Subterranean Books, mm -hmm. uh, Serendipity <laughs> Books, and um, have it all done for about 500 bucks. And when I f stopped 15 years later, it was more like two grand, you know, and it was getting more each yeah. time I did a book. It was beginning to, as I say, I, mean, I, I you know, I, I didn't, I, you know, I was always working for a living. So this was, um, you know, 500 bucks, okay, you know, and I was getting any eight grants to help me out, National Endowment for the Arts. I had at least three, maybe four, I don't know, can't remember. But uh, they supported you know, at least part of the publications. And then the NEA, you know, it kind of didn't go around the corner, but it became more difficult, you know, just a little more difficult yeah. to deal with. So one thing and another, but it was economics. It wasn't my interest particularly. It was just becoming harder than I could manage. Um, and there's an argument for small presses not, living for 60 years you know mm -hmm. i mean yeah <laughs> um you know what really is was in my case i would say the first dozen books that i published um lewis's aside because lewis had had a few books out many i don't know what percentage but many of them were first manuscripts you know first writer first time in publication for a writer you know you, you you're kind of making available literature by authors who are getting going and for me that was more important than um 
you know, publishing the crowning achievement of some already well-recognized writer. I, I never published Bob Creeley for that reason. I mean, I could have, but it, it didn't seem to the point, you know, of what I was doing anyway. It's a philosophy, uh, personal, you know, many, I think many small presses tend to last for 10, 15, 20 years, and then they've kind of done their yeah. job, you know, and yeah. uh, others come forward, we hope. Yeah, and there are, I think, kind of, if you look over the last 50 or 60 years, there's there are kind of waves of literary uh, uh, efflorescence, you know, and and the presses yeah. are part of yeah. the the movement, you know, of, of that particular generation, place, and time. Um, I, I think it does yeah. work that way. And there are some things, you know, there are obviously exceptions, people who um, continue on for many, many years or who transfer it on to someone else. And, you know, that it's yeah. fine. I think it varies by, I think, you know, if you think of a press as being the part of the literary work of the operator and it's really singular, then it does make sense for it to end when that operator, you in your case, decides that it's time, um, you know, for whatever reason. It, you know, you don't. It, I've never been it, called it's, an operator before. That's great. I like that operator. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. <laughs> I hope that's. It doesn't sound. You know, have wrong, the incorrect connotations. But um. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's, it's yeah. a great. It's a great choice of words. I, my my dad, my father was a private detective for a living. That's what he did for a living mm. when I was growing up. And he had operatives. You know, like the Continental. Ah, right. Yeah. The op, yes, OP yeah. was operative. You, you had operatives. So I always liked that, you know, operator, operative. Was word right. word. So did he, just speaking, just did he, how many operatives did he have? <laughs> he, he, <laughs> well, uh, you know, he, he uh, all the time I was growing up, he was running a company which he invented uh, called the Associated Bureau of Investigation. It sounded like the FBI, you know, so. Right, right, uh, right. Uh, he didn't like the FBI. It wasn't, you know, anything like that. Uh, but um, uh, he said they were bad detectives. He told me that once. Uh, and he was a detective. That's what he did. You know, he he was a, a detective all that time. Uh, he had quite a, well, how shall I say this? He had offices in Cincinnati. That's where I lived, where I was born and raised, and that's where he started out as a detective. But kind of by the time I was about 14, he had some offices in Chicago and Indianapolis and New York and Cincinnati and other things going on. Mm. He, was, he was an operator, <laughs> you know. And, uh, <laughs> um I we weren't rich, but you know, I, I don't think you get rich being a private detective. But, but you know, there were a few times when he did some pretty interesting work, and he did his very best. Particularly, my mother did her very best to keep my brother and I from knowing anything about this. Right, but um, it was hard to do. <laughs> you know, it's hard to keep. A, I mean, we weren't the Hardy Boys, believe me. You know, we were, <laughs> but you know, we were protected from the grimmer side of what my dad was doing yeah. for work, for sure. Yeah. Uh, but also the phone would ring and we would always have our ear to the door. And when we went to his office, there was a lie detector there. 
which I had, you know, a demonstration of when I was about 10. Um, there were a couple <laughs> of guns. There were a couple of guns that he'd taken away from people. He didn't use them himself or carry one. But there were a couple of guns my brother and I learned to take apart and put together really fast. Yeah, you know, it was kind of a weird way to grow up in a certain way, but it was interesting, you know? <laughs> well, it's an, definitely yeah. unusual, very much an unusual um, yeah. Um, yeah. situation. And he was a reader, too, you know? I mean, he he had a pretty good-sized library for a little house in, in Ohio, and I grew up in that library, so... You know, um, yeah, you know, he was an influence for sure. I think that's important. You know, growing up around books is meaningful, um, most likely. I think um, so. It's hard, yeah, I think hard, so. hard not to notice that. Um, yeah. So just to go back to, you know, what happened with Tombaktu, when you decided to finish it, what, were, what was your work at that time? What were you doing? Well, I went from the bookstore to a book to working as what they call a stripper in the old print business, which is mm. you're, you know, you're stripping the pages into 16 sheet uh, photographic, getting ready for photography, for lithography, for lithographic printing, paperback printing, whatever. Um, I worked at the West Coast Print Center for some time, which, speaking yeah. of the NEA, was an NEA-supported um, yeah. print shop. And I worked there with Johanna Drucker, Alistair Johnston, uh, Marion Hayden. Um, these are names on the West Coast of people who were you know, pretty consistently um, highly respected, productive printers of, you might say, you know, high tone art books, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, these people are artists in their own right, and they happen to make books. Um, yep. And a number of other people, Jerry Ratch was there as a poet and printer. Um, uh, Don Cushman ran the place, another poet. So it was a little hive yep. of, and for us, and for me, anyway, as a writer and a poet at the scale that I was operating, there's that word again, you know, there was a way for us to pay the bills, pay the rent, do some work that wasn't hurting anybody. And out of that, I one day, Cushman said to me, you know, what we really need here is a bindery, but a bindery is a whole separate operation. And I thought, oh, okay, <laughs> you know. So I read up on binderies, and I bought a bunch of machines. You need a binder. You need a big knife to cut right. the books. You need, you need a, a folder. Cutter. Yeah. cutter, the folder. So I got a little bank loan, and I bought this equipment. I really didn't know one end from the other, but I learned. And, um, and I hired three people from Bellinas. Two of them were poets. So I kind of did what Cushman did. You know, I got some artists around me, so I wouldn't go completely nuts. And I ran a book bindery for five years. Called The best thing about it was the name. I called it Fastback Bindery. I thought it was a great name for a book company, you know, yep. like binding. Fastback Bindery. It's the best name I ever came up with. Better than Tavuk too, which nobody could even <laughs> pronounce. <laughs> Were you in uh, Bolinas? You know, was, no. was the Bindery in no. Bolinas? Or? Print Center was in Berkeley. The right. Bindery was in Oakland, not too far okay. away. 
So I, w- I was still living in Bolinas, but I was sleeping at the binary three days a week. So you couldn't commute. It was too far. Yeah, too far. I was thinking about that. I did that for about five years. And when I finally closed Timbuktu down, I was working for the University of California um, in their Hispanic Studies Department, writing grants. I wasn't teaching. I never really... Teaching and I didn't get along, you know. Um, I tried it. I tried it because, of course, it's the go-to default position for a writer in America. What else are you going to do, you know, Um, for a lot of people? Um, but for me, at the end of the second year, I just, I came to, I had a revelation about teaching and writing, and that was that the only thing they had in common was a pencil. They're just, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I thought like when I had to teach, I would think like a teacher. And it was so different than thinking the way I really thought. And thinking as an artist or a writer or a poet or whatever you want to call it. Um, it was just a, I mean, we both used pencils. That was what I could, you know, I stopped. I stopped. I, I, yeah, I wasn't going to go on with that. So I didn't. <laughs> um, so I was always looking for, and I stuck with books, you know, I mean, the bookstore, the book bindery, the publishing company, all of that. Um, and then the university. I mean, I, I I tried to hang in with books. They're my my friends, you know. So, so did you go then work at U- University of California for a while? I did. Yeah, I worked there for um, probably six years, and I was I was writing grants for them primarily. I helped them set up nine um, Hispanic studies. Uh, they called it. Uh, centers on each of the nine campuses. Um, and I got them money, you know, I wrote them grants. And they showed me how. I mean, I don't mean that I, you know, found the goal. They t- they pointed me in the right direction, and I could write just about anything, so I wrote the grants, you know. Um, but by that time, I was also about to become a Muslim. <laughs> After about 20 years of thinking it over, you know, my, my, all my time in Africa exposed me to Islam in a way that um, I never, you know, I mean, I graduated from a pretty good university without knowing anything about this, you know, a religion that encompasses about a fifth of the population of the world. But I didn't know anything about it ever, <laughs> really, until I went to Morocco and North Africa and West Africa. So I had a lot of friends who reminded me never was interested in religion. But I got interested in Islam when I, when I um, it wasn't a nervous breakdown, but, you know, it was just the opposite in a way. But it was as damaging to me. I was in kind of a crisis of uh, not tasting the soup. You know, you like you bring the soup up to your lips and you, yeah, you, drink it and it goes down and you're nourished, but you don't taste it at all. That was where I was, you know, in my late thirties. And I needed something to slow me down a bit, to give me a focus, a little practice, a little whatever. And um, Islam is more of a practice than, I mean, it is a faith, it is a religion for sure, but um, it's a daily thing. You know, you do there's certain things you do. And I, I needed some, discipline, you might say, you know, I wasn't mm-hmm. in 
uh, harness to anything. So it was useful to me to become, it was a very practical, you know, kind of thing uh, for me. Um, so in, in, um, in, in becoming a Muslim, um, it changed what I wrote about for a while. I, I wrote a travel book about going on the pilgrimage to Mecca, for example, which kept me busy for two or three years and gave me a contract with a quote unquote real New York publisher, you know, that <laughs> yeah. actually made a lot of money. Um, and it didn't hurt. Um, and uh, I wrote another two or three books that are kind of related in one way or another to Muslims more than Islam. I'm, I'm not a religionist. I'm not a spiritualist. I'm not a Sufi. I'm not, I don't know what I am, but I, I try to follow the sort of main line and not too, not too rigorously, frankly. You know, I'm not a... Um, I, I, you might say I'm Muslim light, you know, L-I-T-E. Uh, <laughs> or light, L-I-G-H-T, you know, that could or be. Or <laughs> L-I-G-H-T. Yeah. And, and so then, since then, you've become a filmmaker. Is that, how did that evolve? A after 9-11, I had a red hot topic, you know, and I, when I'm, it, it was a path of, um, nothing I planned, really. Um, when I went to Mecca on the Hajj, I wrote a proposal, and I sent it to a couple of publishers. And one of them, Grove Press, they really liked the idea. White guy going to Mecca. What? Right. <laughs> you know, that's going to be, that could be an interesting travel book, I suppose, they thought. And for me, um, it was great to have the opportunity to, I'd always wanted to write a real travel book, you know. So um, that was a chance to do that. When I say real, I mean something that, that put together, on the one hand, the business of going a place where most people hadn't been yet on an adventure, let me take you by the hand and show you this world which you do not know yet and I'm discovering, that kind of travel book. Um, and on the other hand, a book that willy-nilly had something to do with the life of the spirit, you know, with religion, with all these topics that are a little mm, hairy and, and, and <laughs> you know, fuzzy in people's minds, particularly Americans. You know, I mean, we've had a lot of bad experience with religion here, you know, and, of uh, the televangelist side of things. And so there's, you know, you, you need to like be able to unpack some tricky topics. And I found that challenging and interesting. So I did that book and somebody read it at ABC Nightline, Ted Koppel's television program, um, which had started because of the Iranian hostage crisis. That was the beginning of Nightline. They'd, Founded the days. They were on day one, then they were on day 183, then they were on day 250. And um, then they went on for 25 or 30 years. It's still on, actually, but Coppola's retired. So a guy called me up one day out of the blue and said, listen, uh, do you know anybody who might want to go to Mecca and help us make a half-hour special Friday night kind of documentary? And I thought for about 10 seconds, and I said, well, I don't know anybody but me because I don't know anybody else that's done that. He read the book. He said, yeah, well, I just read your book. So he was setting me up, you know, I mean, he had, he had, and 
And three weeks later, I, I thought this would be next year, you know. I thought we'd have like 11 months to plan it all out. But that's not the way TV works, you know. So I put my grant writing life on pause. And I flew to Washington. And I sat around a table for a while and made sure that they weren't going to make a mistake, you know, um, cut to the news, whatever. You know, I mean, I wanted the story. It was going to be about the Hodge and have my name on it. I would like it to be about the Hodge, thank you, you know, not about the Iranian hostage crisis or something, you know. So I sort of made them promise me that they were going to do that. And then I got on board with them. Um, they, they were already signed up. These were a lot of a lot of journalists who had cut their teeth in the Middle East and benefited from a lot of hospitality from the people in Cairo and Lebanon and uh, Jordan, you know, almost everybody around that table had done their first stint in the Middle East. And they'd been trying for years to do something nice about Islam, you know, <laughs> and they weren't having much luck because all they could kind of come up with was the Palestinian crisis or something. I mean, they didn't really. So finally, somebody said, well, what about the Hajj? That would, you know, we could do that. You know, that would be like an adventure. So they were into it already. They were into behaving and actually making a travelogue and being cool about it. So I went and I learned in three weeks how to make a movie. I didn't know anything about any of that. Mm. I studied it in college. I didn't go to Hollywood to become a screenwriter. I I learned to make movies in Mecca from these three news guys. You know, one of them had a bullet hole in his leg from working in the Congo. I mean, they were so happy to be in. You know, <laughs> the Hajj is like a big retreat. It's like you go on Hajj and you're out of this world, and you're meant to be. So for them, it was like a real picnic. You know, they, they weren't dodging bullets. They were. It was all very, <laughs> you know, very agreeable. And so I was their guide because I had been there once, and none of them had. So, um, so I kind of showed them. Well, then you go here, and then you do. I knew the rights because I'd done them. There are certain rites that you perform when you go. Um, so I was like their guide, and I wrote the script, which I didn't really know how to do, except I, I was telling a story that I kind of knew, you know. So anyhow, three weeks later, this thing was on television in America, and millions of people saw it, you know. It was weird. <laughs> A strange experience. So weird, you know, because poetry, you know, mostly would be, like, as you were saying, you know, you print 500 copies and you're lucky if all of them right. are actually read by somebody, whereas on television, it's the entire world. So there's a real disjunction there between the poet and the, you know, the television filmmaker, very different worlds. Exactly. You're very perceptive because that could have gone about six different ways. That's exactly what I meant. <laughs> and uh, having learned how to make a film and having seen that you could command an audience like that with a message that you cared about, adventure, you know, something about the Arab world that wasn't dire, you know, I cared about that, you know, um, I made it. Uh, that and I wrote that book, you know, more for 
people who knew nothing about Islam than from Muslims. Uh, you know, I mean, there was such a dearth of any kind of news that really had anything to do with anybody except some upstart revolutionaries. Um, certainly didn't represent the, you know, almost billion people who happened to be Muslim all over the world. Um, so, so I felt pretty good about that, you know, and, and I'd learned to make a movie, which was pretty cool. You know, I mean, I love writing books, but you know, you sit in a room and you got a stack of paper and you're putting ink on it. I mean, it's, it's a solitary profession and filmmaking is just the opposite. I mean, at the end of any thing, you know, there are 200 names and those are just the names that got on there, you know, actually earned a credit. There were also a lot of other people involved. So that was interesting, you know, to kind of, it was like an artistic counterbalance to the business of writing prose, let alone poetry, which for me is like completely on automatic pilot. I mean, I don't have any control over that, you know, just like really, you know, prose book, you can at least drive it like a car, you know, but poetry doesn't work that way. It's much older than that, for one thing. Yeah, that's true. So the filmmaking was was a nice antidote, and I started a company. Uh, I was always starting some company to stay alive, so I started a company to make movies, you know, and it's still going. I've been doing that for 25 years, so it's a long way to get to the answer to your question, you know, what was I doing, but that's what I'm doing. And you know, you're telling the story of an entire life in a few words. So it's actually, you know, it's, I think it's appropriate. And do you, you still, you're still writing as well as making film? Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Uh, right now. I mean, in addition to poetry, which just kind of attacks me from time to time, I don't have much to say about that. If I get a good idea, I drop everything and, you know, it's not an idea anyway. Yeah, I don't know. Sometimes just the sound of the words or whatever. Um, I don't have much, you know. I, I can't make that happen. But but I am working on a couple. Nonfiction is my preference. I write nonfiction better, and I understand how to do it a little better. Um, but I'm writing a, a a sort of a memoir that's turned into a novel, and I think it's okay. I you know I'm working on a second draft of that, and I'm. And I'm doing, I made a discovery about 10 years ago that I had family, directly related family, in Boston in the 1630s. Mm. Who knew? You know, my mother didn't know that. But, but her maiden name was the name of this carpenter in Charlestown who helped kind of build Charlestown. And who didn't get along so well with the Puritan government. He had a rough time. He was, uh, you know, just wanted to go his own way and do his life, and they didn't like that. So he actually got caught reading the wrong book, literally, which I thought was just fantastic, you know. <laughs> he had to pay a fine, you know. He almost went to jail. Yeah. He, he was too smart. To, he didn't go to jail because he knew how to manage him. But he never really apologized either, you know. He was outside of the fold for 25 years, but it didn't kill him, you know. They weren't really that powerful. They were pretty powerful, but they didn't have the whole population in the palm of their hand. I'm speaking of the Puritans. So I was able to learn a lot about this man and about his children and why 
I think, after the fourth generation, they left the mainland forever. I mean, they'd had it <laughs> and went to Nantucket, where yeah. they did pretty well for themselves. You know, they got in at early stages of, they were carpenters, all of them. You know, you learn what, you learn to, your job from your dad. They were carpenters, then cabinet makers, then um, interiors of ships, then boat builders. And then a few generations more, there are like three whaling captains in there. One of them, you know, did well enough to move to Virginia and buy a farm. And, you know, <laughs> it's like a long story. But the part that interests me is this, this early part, um, 1635 uh, to, to the Salem witch trials. One of my near relatives was a witch. So, you know, my family kept having trouble with the authorities. <laughs> um, yeah, <right. laughs> which makes sense. Which means historical <laughs> record, you know, I can actually find out when he was in, you know, when he had to go to court again, you know. I mean, these records are very, you know, he was, he was, could read. He read a Baptist tract, and um, that's what got him in trouble. Because, you know, Baptists and Puritans, oh, no, you know, that wasn't yeah. allowed. It was the first church of the Puritans, and they call it the first church because it was the first and only church. It wasn't meant to be another church, except right. there were Baptists in the woodpile. You know, there were, there were even Puritans who weren't going along with the heavy-handedness of, you know, of the uh, authorities, the magistrates. The governor. So it's a fascinating history, and 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 I'm trying to understand it well enough to write about it in an interesting way. It's very easy to write boringly about this, you know. You just write another history book, put everybody to sleep. But I'm trying to um, find the right mixture of authenticity and accuracy, historical accuracy but also an interesting mm -hmm. way, a voice, a narrative structure that, yeah. So, yeah, I'm still writing. This is great. It's really nice to have a sense of everything you've done. I know this is very short, so uh, and we're kind of out of time, but I really appreciate your, you know, just telling this whole saga, um, even though in short form. <laughs> This is pretty good, you know, 30, 35 minutes, that's enough. <laughs> but um, well, no, it's but, good. You know, we could have talked about, um, I don't know, the, the 20 years since 9-11 in the Muslim yeah. community. We could talk about that. Yeah. We could have talked, because there are six or seven or 10 million, who knows, Muslims in the United States who happen to be citizens here. You know, they're not like, yeah. and they didn't just arrive either, you know, they came some of them with the Spanish in the 1500s, for God's sake. You know, I mean, it's not like they're just yeah. off some boat or something. So there's a big immigration story that nobody seems to know. Um, and um, oh, we could have talked more about books. You know, that would be cool. Well, we uh, maybe another time we could, yeah, we could have talked about, you know, tell stories about writers, um, many of whom we know in common, especially, you know, I was thinking yeah. about Doug Wolf, who you mentioned, who um, I thought was a really important and special writer and a very unusual person. Um, but anyway, yeah. we'll have to save that for another 
uh, conversation. I really want to thank yeah. you for doing this, Michael. Um, sure. This has been Publishing Talks, a podcast about books, writing, um, all kinds of other things. Uh, I'm David Wilk, your host, and I've been talking to Michael Wolf. Thank you so much.